One of the other aspects that Governor Allen touched on in his speech was the role of natural gas now in bringing a new era in vehicle transportation. Uh, this is a subject which, uh, in fact, we conducted an entire conference um, early last year on this very topic here at Hudson. Uh, what you have available for you is the uh, proceedings of that conference, which we published as Future Fuels, uh, which has been available here, and I urge you to pick up a copy and have a look at it, and the wonderful papers and, 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 and discussion in there, including an introduction by yours truly. Uh, one of the present presenters we had there was Michael Jackson from the uh, uh, Fuel Freedom Foundation uh, to talk about natural gas-derived fuels. Michael unfortunately unable to join us, but we do have in his place uh, one of his colleagues, Gal City, and also for our for the presentation today, uh, we also have um, our very good friend. Uh, what do I do with my introductions here? Gentlemen, do you want to get started right away? Let's. Why don't we do that, and then and I'll, I'll get. I'll get. I'll get back in, back in track here at that time. So do you want to get started? Sure. I'll, so uh, I believe my presentation is up first. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about the foundation. If this, uh, there we go. Um, so Fuel Freedom, uh, we're a nonprofit and our goal is to make transportation fuels of all sorts compete on equal footing. Uh, at the pump for consumers to reduce the cost of driving for the average American. So that that means gasoline, diesel, natural gas, ethanol. Uh, we want them all to have a fair shot um, to compete for consumer dollars. Um, that means overcoming regulatory, commercial, practical barriers, and all sorts of things that uh, limit some of the other fuels that exist. but don't really have a great market penetration and aren't readily available for the average person. Uh, as such, our focus is on the light duty fleet, so the average passenger vehicle. Um, the main reason for that is that this is uh, the largest uh, fuel user, the largest sector um, that uses fuels. and. Um, and therefore, it represents the most promise for other fuels to uh, gain market share. Uh, specifically, I can't tell if the slide uh, change here. Uh, we're interested in uh, liquid fuels produced from natural gas, uh, as we've been talking about all morning long. Uh, the price of natural gas is low now and has been low, and there's an abundance of it uh, in the U.S., and there's expected to be an, abun an abundance of it for many, many years, decades uh, to come. And there's technology available uh, to not only keep the price low, uh, mainly the shale, shale revolution uh, proves that, uh, but technology also to convert it, the natural gas, into liquid fuels 
such as methanol and ethanol. Uh, a lot of these technologies have been around for a long time and have been used and proven and can create a cost-competitive fuel uh, at the pump for consumers. Um, so the natural gas liquids uh, will have the potential to reduce uh, both GHG and criteria toxic pollutants. Um, with advanced technologies, those reductions in the future could be even greater uh, than what we can see in the fleet today with those fuels. And they can lead to significant petroleum displacement, including uh, petroleum imports, which could be a very strategic advantage for the US. Um, to get these fuels into the market, uh, we uh, concentrate on the current fleet of flex fuel vehicles in the US. There's about 21 million of them on the road. So these are about 21 million cars that can already today take ethanol up to 85% uh, in, their, in their engines and run fine on it and meet all EPA regulations and NHTSA CAFE standards and all those, uh, all those regulations, including the California ones as well. Uh, further, cars can be converted to run on these uh, natural gas liquid fuels or alcohol fuels, methanol and ethanol. Um, and this isn't done uh, so much right now, uh, but um, there's promising evidence that it could be done uh, in an affordable manner um, for current cars on the road so that we, we don't need to wait for new cars to be sold and for fleet turnover. Um, and liquid fuels like ethanol can scale pretty quickly. Um, there's already distribution and infrastructure in place. There's a lot of producers and um, a lot of uh, industries and trade organizations and such uh, that uh, already have a stake in it and promote it and uh, presumably would be happy to see its market share increase. And uh, with the increasing market share of uh, these other fuels that can be made from natural gas. Uh, we think that would really spur uh, competition and innovation in the fuels market and um, could really lead to economic growth and help the average consumer. So I'm going to go into a little more detail here about the opportunity. Uh, this graph you may have seen before, uh, the red line uh, represents uh, historic and projected uh, oil prices. And the blue line is uh, the same for natural gas. Um, as you can see in the past, natural gas uh, more or less tracked uh, the prices of oil. And this is all on a, a BTU basis, by the way. So it's uh, uh, making the prices uh, equivalent in apples to apples comparison. Um, and so, yes, in the past, is uh, natural gas has tracked oil prices. And then, uh, as you can see there, beginning at the, the shale revolution, where we unlocked all this new natural gas here in the country, there's been a decoupling of natural gas and oil prices. And that's that gap in the prices is expected to continue on for many years to come. And so the opportunity I'm talking about uh, to get natural gas into the transportation market is represented by that area between the red and the blue lines. That's the economic opportunity. Um, 
which over time is likely many, many trillions of dollars uh, in market potential for natural gas. So why LDVs? Uh, the heavy-duty vehicles uh, do use a lot of fuel per vehicle, and there's definitely a place for many different types of non-petroleum fuels in the heavy-duty market. Um, but despite the high per-vehicle fuel use in the heavy-duty market, the light-duty fleet uh, overall uses uh, significantly more uh, fuel than the heavy-duty market. Um, and so the natural, natural gas has much higher opportunity to gain significant market share in the light-duty fleet um, to really grow its market potential. Uh, this, these are uh, the pathways for natural gas, and highlighted in the middle, the red box is the pathway I'm talking about. So a, a lot of what was uh, mentioned today was a uh, natural gas in uh, use for electricity, how it's been uh, displacing coal, how it's uh, a backup for solar and wind that um, are yet to be completely reliable. And in the transportation sector, you've probably heard a lot about natural gas is LNG, liquefied natural gas, and compressed natural gas. And to a very small extent, I believe there's about 700 fuel cell vehicles on the road right now. Um, so natural gas to get the hydrogen for fuel cell vehicles. Uh, but the LNG, CNG, and fuel cell, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles are still a very small market overall. Um, I believe maybe about 5% of the fleet, and most of the LNG and CNG is in, on the heavy-duty side. Very little of it in light-duty vehicles. Uh, so these are the fuels that uh, we can use uh, in the light-duty side uh, that can be made from natural gas. So ethanol, which currently in the US is primarily made from corn, increasingly from uh, cellulosic sources. Um, the good thing about ethanol is uh, you have kind of a large range there. The, the blend of ethanol and gasoline could be as low as 51% and go as high as 83% according to the specifications. Um, a benefit of, of a lower blend would be that uh, you may see a little bit less uh, of a mileage loss for the vehicles. Um, as I mentioned, there's a large population of uh, flex fuel vehicles on the road today that can take these fuels and uh, many more continue to be produced and sold all the time. And there's uh, a fueling infrastructure in place. I, I think the number of retailers now is uh, over 3,000 uh, that sell ethanol, E85. And uh, we have seen some successful retailers that have uh, really had high margins and uh, added locations uh, with uh, E85 pumps. Uh, there's uh, uh, growing uh, mid-level ethanol blends as well. E15 was approved by EPA um, for use in vehicles. Uh, I believe that's a typo. I believe the, uh, it's actually uh, model year 2001 vehicles in newer are all uh, capable of running on E15 safely and efficiently. 
and uh, E30, uh, known as a mid-level blend, uh, is also a potential in that it uh, can get a lot of the high-octane, clean-burning benefits of ethanol while still having a lot of the energy content of uh, higher gasoline blends. Methanol has been used in the past, uh, most notably in California in the 80s and 90s. Uh, in fact, my uh, colleague who uh, couldn't be here today uh, uh, worked heavily in that program to get methanol uh, into the transportation sector in California. Um, the problem with methanol today is, is that since that program fizzled out, uh, largely due to the, at the time, low oil prices making methanol uh, not very competitive, um, since it fizzled out, there haven't been uh, new vehicles that, can, that were made to run on methanol, so there aren't really vehicles on the road today that can take it, not in the dedicated form or flex fuel form. Uh, the infrastructure, again, doesn't really exist. And uh, there may be some uh, emissions issues at the lower methanol blends. Um, so let's get in a bit to the benefits. Uh, we believe consumers are highly motivated by the price, especially in the fuels market. Uh, if you've been at Costco on a Sunday and seen the lines at the gas station, I, I think that's evidence to that. Um, And this chart here uh, shows that as well. Um, this shows the price gap between ethanol and gasoline and how the larger the price gap is, the, or that is the cheaper ethanol E85 is compared to gasoline, the more retailers sell of it. So there's, there's a pretty high price sensitivity and the low price of natural gas can help maintain those low ethanol prices and steal market share. Um, mentioned a lot of this already, but the, the existing fleet, there's a very little uh, differences between a car that's capable of running on ethanol and one that's gasoline only. There may be some differences in the parts to make them more compatible. Um, although there's some evidence that suggests that many vehicles that aren't listed as uh, compatible with ethanol, uh, their parts indeed are. And uh, some software adjustments as well um, for the computer to tell the engine how to run on ethanol in terms of ignition timing, spark timing, etc. And, uh, and that leads to the emissions benefits of um, since the computer controls the engine, and the engine uh, timing is going to affect the emissions in many senses, um, and that helps us achieve the lower emissions that's possible with ethanol. Uh, this this graph here is a testing done by Lotus of uh, gasoline and various alcohol fuel blends. So that's both ethanol and methanol, and you can see a. Uh, a uh, much lower average uh, of NOx emissions, which is a regulated emission by EPA, uh, with the alcohol fuel blends. And there's been other uh, testing to suggest that evidence as well. Um, so uh, more of the benefits, as I mentioned, the NOx benefits, uh, 
and this can help uh, with reaching uh, ever-increasing uh, ozone standards. Uh, it's less toxic. There is uh, less benzene. If you went to 100% ethanol blend, there may be no benzene. Uh, less toluene. Um, however, there are more aldehydes. Uh, but all the vehicles on the flex fuel vehicles on the road today all meet EPA standards, even though their emissions may have uh, higher aldehyde emissions compared to gasoline. They're still within standards and can perhaps be made even better in the future as uh, automakers tune their cars and design them for to run better on ethanol um, if it continues to get market share. Um, the GHG emissions can also be lower. Um, natural gas to methanol uh, will likely show a slight uh, improvement compared to gasoline, and this will depend largely on the fugitive methane emissions. Um, if you can really go get that under control, then it will probably show a greater benefit, and ethanol will, made from natural gas will be slightly worse results than methanol. Um, so again, if you can get the uh, fugitive emissions under control, um, you can see a benefit and that could really help um, in getting the uh, fugitive emissions under control could really uh, be economic if there's a greater market for natural gas in the transportation sector. Um, um, and lastly, these fuels, the alcohol fuels, they can enable even uh, greater efficiency and greater improvements in vehicles in the future that uh, gasoline simply can't handle due to its its low octane rating and uh, other fuel properties. Uh, you get better charge cooling with alcohols. Um, and, and this graph here is uh, where I'm going to finish. This is sort of our um, assessment of uh, the GHG reduction potentials of uh, the different pathways. So the, the black bar all the way uh, at the end there, the highest one, that's the average uh, GHG emissions for uh, the light duty fleet in 2005. And the, the red line across the graph is um, the 80% uh, reduction target uh, that many believe is needed in the vehicle sector to meet climate goals. And you can see you can easily get there with electricity and hydrogen. But both those technologies are very expensive, uh, not proven. So barring any uh, breakthroughs, um, they may remain out of reach for a while. With ethanol and methanol, uh, you can get there or just about there at much lower cost to the consumer and uh, to the economy as a whole. Uh, you can use cars on the road today. Um, you can make uh, new cars that don't require expensive batteries or uh, other expensive systems. Um, they're basically slightly modified gasoline vehicles. Um, as the slideshow earlier, incremental cost of about $100 a vehicle, which for a new car is, uh, is not insurmountable. And, uh, and I think I will uh, leave it at that. Class of 04, faculty fellow of mechanical engineering at Texas A&M. He's also director of the Advanced Engine Research Laboratory, which is conducting experiments and work research on 
performance, efficiency, and emissions of internal combustion engines, and also working on improving natural gas compression engine emissions and reliability. And it's the, com the compression, uh, the, the CNG factor, uh, compressed natural gas factor in vehicle transportation that I think uh, that Tim's going to talk about at greater length. The other thing I'll just mention to you very briefly is, is that he is also uh, received numerous research and teaching awards, including the Epright University Professorship for Undergraduate Teaching Excellence at Texas A&M. So from that point of view, we are in for a treat. And by the way, I'll just mention there are teacher evaluation forms at the back of the room to fill out when you get finished up. Tim? Thank you, Dr. Herman. And just don't tell my department head, right? Um, so thanks very much for the opportunity to be here today. Uh, yes, I, I live in Texas. Uh, work at Texas A&M. I'm the opposite of Michelle. I'm from the north. I now live in the south. So I don't have the same smooth southern accent. I, I do apologize for that. Although I detect more of an Alabama southern accent than, than Texas. So anyway, um, actually what this talk is going to be about is the engine technology that we use in the pipeline industry, where of course compression is certainly involved. Uh, and a lot of the technology that Gal mentioned in his uh, presentation can be translated into the actual technology that we use in physically moving gas through the pipeline, which is certainly a very interesting issue. So when we say transportation, it can actually mean many things. One is certainly transportation of humans and goods and vehicle transportation. The other type of transportation is, of course, that of the natural gas. And so we have, as was discussed in the first panel session, uh, a large network of pipelines uh, and uh, Interestingly, uh, even in this case, the natural gas itself still does the transportation, as, as I'll talk about in just a moment. So even though it seems like these are two entirely different industries, oil and gas and, and automotive uh, transportation, the technology is at the core the same, and a lot of the lessons learned that we, can, that, that we get from either industry is highly translatable, and uh, as I hope to point out in the presentation. So I won't spend much time on this uh, since we've already had a very nice panel on the pipeline system, except to simply point out that the, the pipeline, the network is, is huge, right? If you were to stretch the pipeline on end, it would go around the earth 10 times. It moves enough natural gas that you could fill over half a million Empire State Buildings at standard conditions. So there's, on a yearly basis, so there's a tremendous network in place of natural gas, and it moves a tremendous amount of natural gas but that gas can't move itself without some kind of prime mover, some kind of technology that compresses, pressurizes the pipeline, pulls it from the wellhead, sends it through the distribution network, the gathering systems, through the pipelines to the local distribution companies, eventually to each residence uh, as we fire our water heaters and our stoves or whatever we're using, natural gas home, natural gas filling stations, whatever the case may be, these compressor engines are, are essentially driving uh, the, the pipeline. So, of course, a prime mover is, uh, is needed, right, to pressurize the, the pipeline, to, to move the natural gas through the pipeline. And when you survey the different technologies that exist around the country in the pipeline network, there's basically three major types of technologies that exist. There's uh, what we call the two-stroke natural gas engines, four-stroke natural gas engines, and then, uh, in some cases, electric motors. Of course, what operators prefer to use are the IC engine, the two-stroke, the four-stroke natural gas engines, 
because you don't have to have some external source or some feed of electricity to that compressor station to be able to run that technology. The engines that are driving the pipeline are using the natural gas that they're flowing through the pipeline to operate. So as long as the pipeline is flowing, the engines will operate, they'll keep that pipeline pressurized, and there's a high reliability that that pipeline will continue to deliver natural gas throughout the, throughout the network. When we survey the specific types of technology, the two-stroke engines encompass over 70% of the horsepower that's required to move natural gas through the pipeline. If you look at the actual number of units, there's actually more four-stroke, what we call separable compressor units, uh, by numbers. But when you look at it on a horsepower basis, there's 70% uh, of that power is delivered by what we call two-stroke integral compressor engines. And we'll talk a little bit about what that terminology means. But just to give you a sense of scale and size of these types of engines, these are not your automotive engines, right? These are huge engines that fill buildings, right? They're the size of buildings. Uh, you can see in some of the pictures, there's people standing next to the engines. Actually, in, in the two pictures where you see a, a human, uh, actually the person is standing next to one of the compressor stages that's, that's actually used to pressurize the pipeline. Uh, and the engine is actually on the other side of the compressor uh, that the compressor is connected to. And that's why they're called integral engines. The, uh, there's, there's no power takeoff off the back of the engine, off the crankshaft, if you will, like you would have in an automotive engine where you have a transmission connected to your engine so the power takeoff is coming off the crankshaft. In the case of these integral engines, the power to drive the compressors is integrated into the same crankshaft that your power pistons are connected to. So as the power pistons operate the crankshaft, they're also operating the compressor pistons and, and Compressing the, compressing the pipeline, moving the natural gas through the system. And the picture that you see on the bottom right there is a schematic of the uh, integral design, and this was patented, invented, and patented uh, by the Cooper Bessemer Company. And so if you've ever heard of Cooper Bessemer, this is what uh, essentially was the bread and butter of that company through most of the 20th century. I am an academic, so I can't help myself to just spend a little bit of time explaining the difference between a two-stroke and a four-stroke engine, and I'll tell you why that's important for the pipeline industry. Uh, the, the primary difference with a two-stroke engine is that you, know, you have basically these four fundamental processes that have to happen within an IC engine. In the case of a two-stroke engine, these four processes take place within two strokes of the piston as opposed to four strokes. Uh, if you drive a, a, an IC engine-fueled vehicle, which I hope you do, uh, you're most likely using engine technology that relies on four-stroke technology. In the pipeline industry, though, one of the key factors that have to be considered is reliability. And integrating four-stroke technology where you have a lot of much more hardware involved, valves particularly, in order to operate that engine on a four-stroke principle, having that extra technology, that extra hardware, on an engine that's going to sit, say, 200 miles from the nearest municipality and the operator just needs that engine to run reliably and consistently, it's not easy to get parts to it, it's not easy to maintain it, it's not easy to get resources to it, you want reliability. You want a simple and elegant solution, and that's what the two-stroke engine technology offers. So that's why 70% of the horsepower of the pipeline industry is driven by two-stroke integral compressor engines they offer the best reliability in terms of keeping that pipeline operational. So in terms of challenges and opportunities, things that we're actually working on in, in say, the research and product development community to 
essentially ensure that the pipeline remains of high integrity, at least from being able to flow the natural gas through the pipeline system, uh, there's, there's essentially three major challenges that we're working on right now. The first is, is directly related to the increased level of shale play that we've had within the natural gas market. Uh, and that's variable fuel composition. This is actually something that the transportation industry, the automotive transportation industry, uh, has dealt with before. And so this is an example of where there's lessons learned between automotive industry and oil and gas transportation industry. It's particularly problematic in the uh, compressor, the natural gas pipeline industry, because unlike in the automotive industry where in the past you'd be pulling natural gas from a wellhead and different wellheads will have different compositions of natural gas, not so much a problem because the filling station may at least consistently be getting the same kind of natural gas from the same wellhead. And so you may have regional differences of natural gas, but you could largely accommodate these from the fact that you are operating your vehicle in a consistent location. People aren't always necessarily driving across the country uh, on natural gas automotive technology. The other challenge is that the shale plays uh, not only have uh, variable composition uh, with by region, but the variation of that natural gas can change from seam to seam. So as you're fracking through the shale, you run across a, a seam, you have a certain composition of natural gas, and the very next seam that you frack through has an entirely different composition of natural gas. And that wreaks havoc on the pipeline engines because essentially they're using that fuel that's flowing through the pipeline. They're using that natural gas. And if they're expecting to see a certain concentration of methane, ethane, and propane, and then the next hour, and that's how quickly these variations can change. They don't change by month to month. They change by hour to hour and sometimes last for days. Uh, the engine has to be able to accommodate now that different fuel composition. These engines are old. They're on old control systems. Uh, they may not be able to respond in, in the correct fashion. And so typically what has, has to happen uh, is you have to what we call derate your engine. You have to decrease the amount of power it can supply, which directly relates to decreasing the flow of natural gas through the pipeline, cuts into revenue, cuts into capacity, as was discussed uh, in the first panel. And so it's a problem that needs to be resolved. In fact, one of our partners on this project that we're doing for variable fuel research is Spectra Energy uh, at their units in Lambertville, New Jersey, where the Marcellus Shale is introducing natural gas compositions that are varying by the hour in some cases. And it's highly unpredictable. You may go days without having a plug of what we call hot fuel or variable fuel composition, and then you'll have several days where it's just consistently changing uh, on a very rapid basis. Being able to design the engines so that they can operate reliably at full power and meet emission regulations uh, is one of the research challenges that we're currently working on. I also mentioned and related is the legacy engines, right? These are all old engines. They've been operating in the field for sometimes 50, 60 years. Uh, and so we'd like to be able to upgrade them with new technology. Electronic controls is, is commonly used in the automotive sector. There's challenges that are associated with that and being able to do that seamlessly and elegantly so that these engines can continue to operate reliably. And then also, as Gal mentioned, fugitive methane emissions is, is continuing to be an issue on the horizon for us. And a compressor station has several different sources of fugitive methane emissions, uh, the engine not being the least of those. The engine itself has fugitive methane emissions. And so understanding how we can curtail those fugitive methane emissions, uh, even perhaps by reburning that methane so that we convert it to CO2, where it's relatively more stable in the atmosphere, uh, are some of the research challenges that we're currently looking at. 
How do we solve these problems? Well, this is where the automotive industry has benefited the oil and gas industry tremendously. All of the tools that we're using in developing engine technology are coming out of what had been developed in the automotive industry. Computational tools that give us insights into the chemistry, how the natural gas burns during the combustion process, being able to characterize the fluid flow through the engine. Seems like it should be something simple to do. It's not, it's, it's highly complex. Uh, and being able to write these codes so that we can come up with quick solutions that support industry and support the product development of being able to advance this technology into the marketplace. And just as an example of, of how we've done this at Texas A&M, uh, we have basically two graphs or two plots that are being shown here. And if you look at the graph on top, what you'll notice, so what this is showing is it's showing measured in-cylinder pressure of the pressure inside the combustion chamber as the engine moves through several cycles. And every time you see a peak, what you're looking or what you're seeing is you're seeing the peak pressure for a given cycle. And then the engine completes its other processes, starts the next cycle, and you see another peak. In an ideal world, those peaks would all be exactly at the same. But if you look closely, you'll notice that there's, you know, some peaks are high, some peaks are low. And then you'll notice, particularly in the box that's colored in red, that there's actually a sequence of decreasing peaks, and then following that decrease, that sequence of decreasing peaks, there's now an increase, a higher pressure peak, right? We call that cyclic to cyclic variability, and it creates a lot of problems for us in being able to run the engine technology reliably and within emission regulations. So we're currently studying this problem, trying to come up with solutions, but to do this mechanically, experimentally, is costly and time consuming. It's much better to do it computationally. But in order to do it computationally, you have to have models that are faithful representations of the actual experimentation. So what we're showing on the bottom is actually the results. These are, in fact, fresh results. The, the code is still running as I, as I speak. It takes weeks for these codes to run. And you may be thinking, well, how is that faster than to do it experimentally? Uh, it takes years to do these kinds of things experimentally. And so there's, there's a lot faster time frame when you are able to do this computationally. But what you'll notice is that that sequence of, of decreasing peaks and then a recovery to a high peak was actually captured correctly by the computation. And this was all done using first principles, right, what we call governing equations. There was no predictiveness that we took from the experiment and added to the computation to be able to do this. So that tells us that these solutions have some element of determinism to them. It's not completely stochastic, which means that we should be able to arrive at an appropriate solution and something which we're currently working on. So where do we go from here? The excitement never ends. We're learning from the automotive industry. The automotive industry is learning from us. In terms of, say, variable fuel composition, uh, you know, compressor stations are monitoring their fuel quality regularly. So we know what we're burning. We just need to figure out how to do it appropriately. And this is something that in, in the automotive industry, uh, they at times continue to struggle with, particularly, particularly with liquid fuels such as gasoline and diesel. Methanol and ethanol and fuels extracted from natural gas would actually solve that problem to a large extent. So we're sharing ideas, we're sharing technology, we're learning from each other, and and uh, we're moving technology forward. Before I close, I do have to thank, right, never trust an academic's presentation if they don't acknowledge the people who actually do the work, uh, and that's the students, and so I just want to make sure that I acknowledge the students. All of the work I've shown here is basically their work. Thank you.
before we adjourn for lunch and for our event with Boone Pickens, which I think will get underway at 12.20, um, I wanted to know if there are any questions for our panelists here. We've got a couple here and then one there. Starting here. Hi. Hi, Nick Snow with Oil and Gas Journal. Thank you for a couple of very interesting presentations. My question uh, deals with uh, uh, ethanol derived from natural gas, which I think is an intriguing idea. Uh, EPA across the street is very concerned, uh, well, has had a lot of trouble meeting quotas under the renewable fuel standard. Um, and uh, I, uh, one of the things that EPA keeps saying is that cellulosic, uh, cellulosic ethanol is superior to uh, corn ethanol because of the lower greenhouse gas emissions. When you talk about ethanol derived from natural gas, how do those greenhouse gas emissions compare? Uh, they're going to be higher, is the short answer, um, especially uh, at first. Um, but uh, as I mentioned, getting um, opening the transportation fuel market to natural gas can create uh, a market incentive for producers to capture uh, fugitive emissions uh, as opposed to the regulatory route that's uh, being proposed now for fugitive emissions. And as you get the more ethanol into the market and vehicles uh, become better tuned for running on ethanol and the OEMs uh, really design their cars more for ethanol knowing that uh, their, uh, uh, the people who buy their cars are going to be using ethanol, um, they can make their cars even more efficient than they are now on ethanol. And, um, on a life cycle basis, about 75 to 80% of the GHG emissions for transportation fuels comes from the tailpipe. So making the vehicle more efficient, which ethanol enables, uh, will produce a large decrease in GHG emissions. Um, and, and that's how we see that having a GHG benefit compared to the current fuel gasoline uh, that dominates the market today. We had another question there, too. Mike Sultan with the Energy Intelligence Group. I, I wanted to ask Gal, how do you convince a non-gearhead like myself to go the methanol route? I mean, I can't even open the trunk, nevertheless hire a mechanic to redo my car into methanol. How do you convince that kind of buyer to stop? Con I keep buying Priuses. When should I stop doing that and switch to methanol? Um, you convince them with money is the short answer. Uh, methanol and ethanol uh, can be produced cheaper than gasoline. Uh, so uh, we believe they can be uh, retailed cheaper than gasoline. And having cars that can run on methanol and ethanol are cheaper than the other alternatives in the market. It's cheaper than battery technology right now, cheaper than fuel cells, uh, cheaper than... Uh, CNG or LNG technology, um, CNG storage tanks and vehicles are really expensive. Honda recently uh, 
uh, stopped producing the CNG Civic, uh, mainly because it was not selling that well, because it was uh, most likely, I believe, because it was $8,000 more than the average Civic, which is a huge amount of money when you're buying you know, an $18,000 car. Um, so we believe the financial incentive is enough uh, to do it. Uh, but as I mentioned in the presentations, there's still barriers uh, such as uh, infrastructure and regulatory barriers that are, are really, uh, in our view, preventing this from breaking out. Then one last question there. Natural gas uh, compression engines. Uh, what's a representative number for how much the power output of these engines might change as a result of a change in the composition of the natural gas? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it's usually anywhere from, say, 10 to 20 percent uh, drop in power, right? So these are typically, say, close to 5,000 horsepower units. Um, and if they're operating at capacity at full horsepower and they hit the slug of hot fuel, they have to immediately derate to a lower power rating. Uh, and usually the, the chief technical reason why that happens is uh, actually more so related to the fact that the uh, other hydrocarbon species other than methane have what we refer to as shorter ignition delays. And so they, they start igniting sooner in the combustion process than if you had a pure methane mixture. So that's not an issue. If you have a mixture of methane, ethane, and propane, it's no problem. You can calibrate for a certain ignition timing, but it's when you start getting higher concentrations of these heavier hydrocarbons, and, and in some cases we've seen species as high as C6, right? So butane, pentane, hexane, uh, that severely advances your ignition timing, and the real challenge, the result is that then the, the uh, nitric oxide emissions start to go out of regulation. So the D-rate is usually related to being able to bring that unit within compliance of emissions regulation. Um, and, but there can also be other mechanical failure-type related issues if, if it were to get completely out of hand. I want to thank both of our panelists and thank our audience.